I want to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, Mark Stelter is going to come up and, and talk about, uh, we've been talking about um, different kind of families, and, and uh, we've talked about being single, and we've talked about being single parent, and we've this week we're going to talk about blended families, and so Mark Stelter uh, gets to come and speak on that. Um, Mark has uh, preached here before. He was here, uh, he preached while Aaron was on sabbatical last year, and one time since then, and so it's always a pleasure to have Mark come, and so I'm going to invite Mark to the stage and hand you the reins. Thank you, Zach, and welcome Ravencrest. You all from Ravencrest? Everybody like, wow, that's a lot of people from Ravencrest. That's great, outstanding. Um, as Zach said, we are going to... Uh, Talk about blended families. Aaron asked me to speak about blended families. Um, um, Natasha is the stepmother of my four children and the step-grandmother of my six grandchildren. Um, and I won't tell you how old she is, but she is too young to have one grandchild, let alone six. So she is a, a step-grandmother which of six grandchildren and a stepmother. So before we start, let's do our Bible verse that we always uh, that we always memorize. And I think you'll see this is appropriate for blended families or for any kinds of families, or really for anyone. It's from Ephesians four thirty two, and let's read it together. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. Thank you. Very good. We have reached the point where we talk about blended families now. Um, and this is an improvement. Um, we used to call blended families broken families. Um, I personally just like the word family without qualification, without it being blended or broken or, or, uh, uh, or any of those kind of qualifications because does it really matter if your child is your biological child your legally adopted child, your unofficially adopted child, um, your stepchild? I don't think so. Um, so to speak about blended families, we really just need to speak about families because they all um, have problems and issues and s stresses. Um, uh, and, and after all, how is a blended family different from a normal family? Um, I think part of the problem we have when we talk about families or think about our families is we have this misperception um, of families. We think that families um, are perfect and that everybody has this divorces. Um, but that's a pretty unrealistic view of families. I think, you know, we think of families that look kind of like this um, as a blended family when really probably families look more like this. <laughs> And um, I think the producers chose a great name um, for this show, The Adams Family. It's a good name because we're all from the Adams Family, Adam and Eve. And, um, and that should probably explain, knowing Adam and Eve, why our families are more like this uh, than they are the, the kind of ideal um, family. So, um, we expect our families to be perfect. Um, in fact, I think the greatest hypocrisy maybe in our in our uh, nation might now be these lies we tell about families. Um, we try to hide their imperfections. We try to pretend everything is, is great. Um, 
if somebody asks me about my family, I just tell them, oh, it's great. It's wonderful. It's all good. You know, kids are winning all the uh, awards on the soccer team. Of course, they give out an award to everybody, so it's hard not to. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, or even that idea of, of giving out awards to everybody's like, why? Why can't we just say sometimes you didn't play a good game? Because everybody has to be perfect now, and it sets a standard for families so high. Um, we're probably more honest and less self-conscious about gender or race or ethnicity or our, our jobs, um, our political views, even our religious beliefs, than we are about the true state of our families. I mean, if somebody asked you, um, you know, what's your ethnic background, you'd probably um, generally answer without embarrassment, uh, I'm I, from Ireland, or I'm Scottish, or I'm, I'm German, um, or whatever the case may be. Unless you're from Kansas, then that's just embarrassing, and you shouldn't tell anyone. Um, but really, if somebody asks you, you know, how is your job? You might say, ah, it's okay, I don't, I don't get along that well with my boss. Um, even our religion, we don't deny the failures of some of our churches or religious leaders, but we like to pretend our families are perfect. One mom, one dad, no divorces. Um, and if we've strayed from this normal stereotype, we're usually kind of reluctant to talk about it. Um, in fact, I thought um, for a long time about whether I should even admit that Natasha and I have a blended family because to tell you that Natasha is the stepmother of my four children is to let you know that I've been divorced. And um, I really don't want you to know I'm divorced because that would mean that uh, somebody, at least one person, didn't like me very much. Um, <laughs> um, and so... Um, but the truth is that families are like that. Let me share a little bit about my family. Um, I'm one of seven children, and my parents got divorced the year of their 50th wedding anniversary, um, which is pretty good because they lasted longer than any of the rest of us. Um, of all the seven children, we've all been divorced at least once, and several of us have been divorced twice. Um, when my oldest sister uh, got married the second time, she, she had two stepchildren. Um, my second oldest brother is raising, currently living with him, so he's, he's raising his granddaughter. Um, my younger brother has a son with his second wife, but also a stepson who's from his current wife's first marriage. Um, and my oldest brother, he takes, he's the best. <laughs> he has a stepson who is his wife's first son, and his current wife has a stepson who is my oldest brother's son from his first marriage. And incidentally, my oldest brother's stepson is gay and is married to another man, and they have an, are in the process of adopting a child. Uh, so my oldest brother will be the step-grandfather of an adopted child who is being raised by two gay fathers. This same brother has a son who's married to an African-American woman, and he has a child, uh, giving my oldest uh, brother a beautiful black uh, grandchild. So I know my family sounds kind of like the Jerry Springer show, um, but this really is kind of a normal family. Um, what does the average family look like? Well, we'll look at some, some statistics and some data. This is the marriage rate in the United States from 1970 to 2012. It's kind of uh, stabilized a little bit, but as you can see, people just are not um, getting married as frequently as they used to. A lot of people are, are just not, uh, not doing that. They're having families without being married. This one's kind of hard to judge. To, to the top one that says 46%, 
those are your, that's your traditional normal family that doesn't really exist so much anymore. Um, 46% are two parents in their first marriage, down from 73% in 1960. Even 73% is sort of low because I think we all presume, or we used to presume, you know, watching I Love Lucy and Father Knows Best and all these shows in the 50s and 60s, that everybody in America had two parents, no divorces, but even in 1960, that was only 73%. Um, now it's down to 46%. 15% are two parents who are remarried. 7% are cohabiting parents. Those are parents who never got married. Um, and I think you'll see that that number is going to go up a lot. Um, and then 26%, single parents. Aaron talked about single parents last Sunday. And uh, 26% are single parents. And 5% have no parents um, whatsoever. So the normal family in America is not two parents in the same marriage. That only represents 46% of all families, uh, meaning that 54% of American families are two parents in remarriage or cohabiting parents or a single parent or no parent. Um, over half of all American families are not the traditional family. Um, this shows... Blended families, what we're talking about today, 17% in the uh, Hispanic and black communities, 15% in the white uh, community, and 7% among Asians. Um, so it's no longer normal to be a family where your mom and dad are both in their first marriages. Uh, and those numbers do not even count the number of families where a child is adopted or came into the family through the mother never being married but having a child or families where they're raising a child that's not their own. Uh, such as a relative's child. And so the number of blended families is even much greater than the statistics show. And, you know, this isn't even new. Um, if you think back to your grandparents or your great-grandparents or somebody in your family or a friend's family, you know families that were blended as far back as, as history goes. Um, it wasn't uncommon for a brother to be raising his brother's son or a sister, to be raising her niece's child, or a grandmother to be raising her grandchildren. Um, and this happened because people were killed in wars or farm accidents or they died of diseases um, or they just left their children. Um, and this has always been the case. The family has never really been this imaginary, perfect uh, picture that we pretend it to be. The famous families of the Bible. Maybe that will show us what good examples of, of outstanding families throughout Scripture. So let's look at some of these uh, famous families from the Bible. This is showing, before we get there, this is how many people have children out of wedlock. Among African Americans, 71%. Uh, and even among uh, white Americans, 29% now are having children without getting married or before they're married. Families of the Bible. Adam and Eve. We all know Adam and Eve. <laughs> um, Eve disobeys God and convinces Adam that he too should disobey and eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge. When God confronts Adam about this, he does the manly thing and blames his wife. Um, <laughs> actually, he blames God because when God says, Adam, did you, did you eat of that tree? He says, that woman you gave me, he doesn't even call her Eve, he doesn't even say my wife, that woman that you gave me tricked me into this. So Adam's the first example of a, a stand-up kind of guy. Um, so that's Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel, the first brothers. So Cain gets jealous of Abel because God seems to like Abel's gift 
better than Cain's. So naturally, like a good jealous brother, Cain kills Abel. So the first family, the brother, one of the brothers kills another brother. Noah's family. So when Noah is seen intoxicated and naked by his sons, one of his sons, Ham, makes fun of Noah. So Noah curses Ham and banishes him to Canaan. And uh, later, the Jews and the Canaanites don't get along very well, and this might have something to do with it. Um, Abraham and Sarah's family. We can go on for a long time about these guys. So Abraham and Sarah, the father, father Abraham, the father of, of Judaism, uh, and really of Christianity and, and of uh, Islam too. Um, so Abraham and Sarah, God promised them a child to this elderly couple, Abram and Sarah. Abram is not ready to wait for Sarah to get pregnant, plus he thinks probably she's not going to get pregnant because she's like 90 years old. And with the permission of his wife, he has sex with her maid, Hagar. Hagar becomes pregnant and has Ishmael. And Sarah becomes jealous of Hagar, who she told him to have sex with. I don't know, guys. I don't get it, but <clears throat> women. <clears throat> has sex with, <laughs> gets jealous of Hagar and Ishmael and tosses them out into the desert. Aaron spoke about this last week, I think. And according to Muslim theology, Ishmael is the rightful heir of, uh, of Abraham because he was his first son. And so... Um, but that was a long time between Christians and Muslims, right? So everything's okay. Um, <laughs> Isaac's family. So Jacob tricks his brother, his twin brother Esau, out of his birthright by lying to his father Isaac with the help of his mother Rebecca. So talk about Jerry Springer. Um, so Esau understandably wants to kill his brother Jacob for this nasty trick. And Jacob runs away and lives with his uncle Laban. Jacob falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, but Laban tricks him into marrying his other daughter, Leah. So I guess what goes around comes around. Um, and Jacob's family. Jacob, of the, who's, his 12 sons, become the 12 tribes of Israel. He has 12 boys, including Joseph, who the other 11 boys are jealous of. So they plot to kill Joseph by throwing him into a well but decided it'd be better just to sell him into slavery to a band of Egyptians. Uh, and then they tell their father, Jacob, uh, that his favorite son was killed and eaten by animals. Sounds like a perfectly normal family. Talk about a guy who probably needs some counseling after that. Um, yeah, don't worry, your son got killed and eaten by animals. We can't even bury him. Um, then later he finds out, oh, he's alive, right? <laughs> um, this is a great story. King Saul, Israel's first king. He's jealous of the popular shepherd boy David and decides he wants to kill him. And Saul's son, Jonathan, wants to protect his son, David. So he sides with David over his dad. And that leads to all kinds of family turmoil. King David's family. This, we, we know about King David. So King David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David decides he needs to have Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed. So he has him killed during a battle. Bathsheba and David's baby later dies. But then, things even, people know that part of the story, but the rest of it, some people might not know. David's son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. And Tamar's brother, Absalom, kills Tamar. Absalom tries to usurp the throne from his father, David, and David's soldiers kill Absalom. After David's death, his son Solomon kills his brother, half-brother, Adonijah for attempting to usurp Solomon's reign. So, if your family is messed up, 
you're in good company. Um, probably not. Probably most of your brothers haven't killed each other yet, but, you know, there's still time. <clears throat> Moses. Moses is placed in a basket by his mother <laughs> and floats down the river, the Nile River. Not really a good thing to put your baby in a basket in the Nile River. It has crocodiles. I mean, you know. But he floats down. He becomes adopted by the royal family. And later, he doesn't get along so well with this blended family, as we know. And he um, leads all of the Israeli slaves out of captivity um, from Egypt. So um, the point isn't to, isn't to uh, disrespect the patriarchs or the famous families of the Bible. Um, it's just to make a point about families, even great biblical families. Um, they're difficult. They have problems. Um, they are, in a word, like our families. Um, in fact, to pretend that we have a perfect family is unchristian. It's unchristian because it's a lie. And it's not to say that we don't love our family or that we're not proud of our family or that at the end of the day, the family pulls together usually when uh, the going gets tough. But to say we have a flawless, perfect family is just not true. Um, I don't have to know anything about your families to know that you do not have a perfect family. How can I say that? How would I know that? Because I presume that your family is made up of human beings. <laughs> um, and human beings are imperfect. And to say that humans and families are imperfect is not just an obvious statement based on experience. It's a biblical truth. The imperfection of humanity is a foundational truth of the Bible. That's probably why God put all of these very messed up people in the Bible. That's probably why he chose these people. And even the heroes of the Bible are deeply flawed people because the emphasis should not be on the amazing people, but on our amazing God who can use these broken and imperfect people to do wondrous and amazing things through God. That's the point of all of the biblical heroes of faith, that they were just that, heroes of faith, not heroes of merit. They're written about in the Bible with all their flaws to show that God is an amazing God who can take these normal, broken, fallen people and use them to change the world. I think God did that on purpose so that everybody could give the glory to God, so that nobody could say, well, sure, Christianity has done well, um, but, you know, they got lucky. Look at these great, amazing, superhuman leaders they had. They had such outstanding men and women that, of course, the Judeo-Christian faith has prospered. Um, no. We, we didn't. God wanted us to look at the amazing success of Christianity and give the credit where it belongs, to God. He wanted us to see that the founder of our faith was not Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Moses, but was God himself. He wanted to clearly reveal that the leaders, as were the leaders of the Christians, with the obvious exception of Jesus, all of the other Early Christians, all of the apostles, the disciples were fallen people. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. Um, Peter denies Christ three times. Um, Christ's own brother, James, rejects Jesus until after he sees him resurrected. So, you know, if that was my brother, of course, I'm not Jesus, but if, I, if it was my brother and I told him, hey, trust me, believe me, have faith, and he said, I don't think so. I think you're just kind of nuts. And then after I'm killed and resurrected, and I come back to life, and then my brother says, oh, hey, I'm with you. I've been with you all the time, bro. I'm like, yeah, right, sure you were. Sounds exactly like my brothers. Um, <laughs> and maybe like some of your brothers. Um, so, 
Um, I mean, they, they, were, they were flawed. They had an argument. Peter and James and John are arguing about which of them is going to sit at the right hand of God in heaven. Now, does that sound kind of like any family you know? Uh, brothers bickering about who's the greatest, who's mom or dad's favorite. Um, these are normal families. And to pretend that our families are perfect leads to, I think, two really big problems. First, it denies Christianity. To pretend our families are perfect is to deny the truth of Christianity. And you might say, how does it deny Christianity? Because one of the most important principles of our faith is the fact of the fall. It's a bedrock principle of the faith that we've been affected by the fall, that we're all sinners. Um, Why is this so important? Because if we're not sinners, we don't need a Savior. There is no reason for Jesus to come and die for our sins if we're not sinners. In fact, denying the fall is very popular these days. Um, it's one of the devil's ways of leading us away from Christ. There is a popular notion now, you know, that Jesus was a good guy, a wise prophet, uh, gave us good advice about how to live our lives, um, that there's no such thing as hell, uh, there's no such thing as sin, people just make bad decisions. Um, If this is true, as even some Christians think it's true, then the Bible needs to be reinvented, rewritten, so that Christianity holds that Jesus came to a bunch of pretty good folks to show them how they could improve their lives a little bit, that a person who was not the Son of God came to tell people who are not sinners that they need to live better lives so they won't go to a hell that doesn't exist. What? That doesn't even make any sense. But that's very popular uh, among intellectuals. Um, But it makes no sense. We know that the Christian truth is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to save us fallen and hopeless sinners from a very real hell of being eternally separated from God. The Christian story makes no sense without the fall. The fall is why we need a Savior. So to deny the fall by claiming that any human or any family is perfect is to deny a central truth of Christianity. Second, by pretending that our families are perfect is to put too much uh, weight on this institution. It's to ask the family to bear a greater load than it can or was ever meant to bring. And it makes people feel guilty and it makes people feel like well my family's kind of messed up uh, you know it's probably because I'm a bad father I'm a bad mother I'm a bad son um, and that that's not true it's just the way families are the family was never designed to bring us happiness or to make all of our dreams come true um, the family's not heaven on earth and nor was it ever meant to be we'd be less dissatisfied with our families if we started looking at them more realistically I think I think maybe we'd be less angry with our parents for example, if we recognize that they, just like us, are imperfect people and that they were struggling and are struggling with all kinds of issues and problems, just like us, and that raising children was something they were not particularly prepared for or trained to do, just like us. They learned it the same way that we learned it and that you uh, younger guys, um, men and women, will learn it, that you learn how to be a parent by being a parent, and um, you make mistakes. And it's kind of like learning how to swim just by being thrown in the deep end of the lake and saying, try not to drown, Um, and that's how you learn. Um, And maybe we'd be less angry with our brothers and sisters if we recognize that they, just like us, are struggling with all kinds of flaws and problems and issues. And we should remember that our brothers and sisters were, after all, raised by imperfect parents. And maybe we should remember that our brothers and sisters had the great disadvantage 
of growing up with imperfect brothers and sisters, namely us. <laughs> and finally, when we're disappointed with our own children, when they make mistakes, when they're not perfect, we should realize, no wonder our children aren't perfect. Look who raised them. <laughs> when we put too much pressure on families to be perfect, to be heaven on earth, we're setting our, uh, ourselves up for disappointment. And worse, we're setting up the family. Perhaps this is why Jesus has some rather unkind words to say about families. Um, maybe Jesus knew that we idolize our families, and he was trying to tell us that we should not turn our families, turn to our families as our only source of strength, but we should turn to him, that our families will let us down, that our families are not our saviors, that only God will never let us down, that only God is our savior. Let's look at some things uh, Jesus said about families. In fact, and I'm not just pulling these kind of, you know, taking some of these things sort of out of context or or just say, finding the mean things he said about families. This is pretty much everything he said about families. Almost everything he says about families are is not particularly nice. Um, probably why you don't hear it, hear a sermon on it very much. But I can do it because I'm not your official minister. So if you get mad at me, that's okay. You don't. I don't, I don't get paid to do this. So, <laughs> in Matthew ten thirty five through 37, he said, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter, or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In Luke... Chapter 14, 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I'm not even going to show you this one. This is when he says there's no marriage in heaven, which is just too sad to think about. But they did ask him who his family was. He said, when Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And most theologians say they were actually standing outside saying, Jesus, um, come here. What, what are you doing? You're kind of embarrassing the family. You're going around telling everybody you're God and forgiving sins. And, you know, why don't you come home and, and you know, be normal? Um, and so he's, he's out there, and, and the crowd said, your, your family wants to speak to you. Your mother and brothers are standing outside, waiting to, wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who is my, my mother, and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother. For some churches even, I think we make the family, we place it in a position that Jesus did not place the family in. Even, even me, I love my family. Um, I love my country. I say things like, you know, God, family, country. But, you know, Jesus didn't really say that. Jesus just said, God. He didn't say family and America, um, right? That wasn't Jesus' message. Now, you know, I love my family, and like any good patriot, um, I love my country. There's nothing wrong with that, unless you turn your love of family and your love of country into the message of Jesus. 
Um, but the message of Jesus was not really about your family or your country. It was about God. And if the family interfered with the love of God, Jesus made it pretty clear which side you should be on. Um, now, again, to put it in context, um, Jesus didn't hate the family. When he says, you know, hate your family, he doesn't mean hate your family. What he, what, what he means in the context of the, of, and the language of that um, time was place God before your family. Choose God, not your family. That God is more important. That God is ultimately more important than your family or yourself. Um, but Jesus uh, uh, didn't, uh, he wasn't opposed to family. Uh, reading the scriptures, you can see the family is one of the central institutions of the faith. But I think it's, that's, I think that's the reason why Jesus warns us against the family, because he knows um, that it can become an idol. He knows that. That's why he also warns us against religious hypocrisy and self-righteousness and pride and money. Um, he knew these things are most likely to uh, take place before God. Um, there's nothing wrong with being religious. There was nothing wrong with the Pharisees uh, with their knowledge and their love for the laws, um, for the religious laws. It was just when they made the knowledge of the law more important than the love of God that they went astray. Nothing wrong to try to live a pure, righteous life. But when people make their self-righteousness more important than the grace of God, then that's when they go astray. And the same is true of pride and money and family. So Jesus doesn't want to, us to abandon our families. He just wants to make sure that we put God first, ahead of our families. In heaven, I don't think it's so much that your family is going to be eliminated. So instead of just having your little family against the world, we're all going to be family. We're all going to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think this is the context of Jesus' comments on the family. Um, but by putting these comments in, into context, let's not dismiss them. Let's not just say, well, okay, that seems pretty harsh, what he says about the family. But in context, Jesus is really all about the family, that in context, being a Christian means being a good neighbor, keeping your grass mowed, not playing your music too loud, dressing appropriately, helping your kids with their homework, you know, and, and send them to a good college. That, that's the essence of Christianity. That's the message of Christ. No, <laughs> it's not. Um, so let's not downplay the radical message of Jesus. Let's not water down this transformative, life-changing, world-shattering message of Jesus Christ. Was he extremely critical of the church in his day? Yes. Of the Pharisees and the religious leaders? Absolutely. Shockingly so. Was he critical of the family? Yes. And why? Because the radical message of Jesus, which is as radical today as it was 2,000 years ago, was that God is the only thing that matters to our eternal destiny. Not circumcision, not sacrifices, not following religious rituals, not being a good person, not ethnicity, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, not gender, whether you're a male or female, not whether one is a slave or free, not whether somebody is a Roman citizen, not whether you're rich or poor, and not ancestry or nation or sect or tribe or family. 
the radical message of Jesus regarding family is that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all God's children. Now, having placed a family in its proper place, uh, it does have a proper place. Um, having limited its importance is not to say that it's unimportant. A family brings with it some great benefits. There are, of course, obvious benefits of companionship and loyalty and sympathy and support, um, financial and otherwise, sometimes, sometimes not, depending on your family and, and the situation. But there are other benefits of the family, blended or otherwise, that often go unnoticed. For example, for better or for worse, being the head of a family, being a parent, is the closest you will ever come on earth to being God. Practicing Christian virtues that we will ever get. Now, I see some people looked a little shocked when I said a parent is as close as you will get to being God. So let me explain. <laughs> I said as, it's as close as you will get to being God. I didn't say it was very close. It's not close at all. But it's as close as you'll ever get. Think about it. When you're the mother or the father, you bring these children into this world. You give them life. They look to you as if you're godlike. Um, that goes away really quickly. So if your parents you know, of young children enjoy that because <clears throat> by the time they're teenagers, they're very, very sure that you are not God. They might think you're the other guy. Um, <clears throat> but the parents of small children... For, for, for them, for the small children, you are almost the alpha and omega of your child's life. They rely entirely on you to survive. They believe anything you tell them. <laughs> they think you have all the answers to every question ever imagined. Um, they look to you for food and shelter and clothing and knowledge and discipline and love. It's an amazing opportunity to be a little bit godlike. Now, why is this such a good opportunity? Why would you even want to be a little godlike? Because... When you're a parent, you learn you are not God. <laughs> you learn that man's desire to be God is foolish and misguided. If you've ever said to yourselves, if I was God, I would have done this, or I would do it this way if I was God. Well, having children kind of gives you a little bit of that chance. And how did you do? <laughs> how is that working out for you? Um, you were given almost complete control of another person's life. Not the whole universe, but just one little person's life. And did any of us who've been parents feel like we've done a godlike job of it? Um, would we have done things differently? Were we perfect parents? When given a, just a little tiny chance to play a little bit of what God is like, how did we do? Anybody who has ever raised children gets to learn that they should never, ever, ever want to be the God of the universe. So that's one of the good reasons to have children. Children are a little more humble than people who don't have children, <laughs> than people who haven't done it yet and who know how they would do it. Well, you'll get a chance. And when you do it, you'll appreciate your parents more. Because even though they did not such a great job, you're not going to do such a great job either. <laughs> but not only does it teach us that we're not God, it brings us closer to God in so many ways. We know what it's like to love unconditionally. We know what it's like to give and to give and to give and to not to expect and usually not to get anything in return. We know what it's like to be misunderstood. Parents know what it's like to be questioned and criticized and blamed for all of their children's failures. And isn't that what we do to God, our Father, as his children? 
all of our failures. If God would have done this, if he would have only done that, if he would just listen to my prayers, if God would just do things the way I told him to, everything would be better. And we also know what it's like to love, to love another person who has free will. People with free will are problematic, right? These are children to think for themselves and to be independent, but then when they actually do it, it's kind of annoying. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I think it gives you maybe a little sense of what it must be like for God, who has given us free will. And we don't always do what he would like us to do, but we have free will, just like your children have free will and won't always do what you want them to do. Then I said you get a chance to practice Christian virtues. I didn't say you would practice Christian virtues, but you get a chance to do that. Um, Think of all the many Christian virtues being in a blended family or really any family gives you. Um, You get a chance to practice patience, obedience, wisdom, discernment, forgiveness, charity, hope, kindness, humility, endurance, selflessness, love. Now, talking about these Christian virtues um, that we have a chance to practice is the one brief time that I will give you any advice I may have from uh, being in a blended family and raising a blended family and um, uh, divorced families. That's really the only advice I have, um, especially for stepmothers and stepfathers, but here it is. Treat your stepchildren like they're your own children. It doesn't matter if the child is from your husband's first marriage or your wife's second marriage. A child is a child, and adults need to act like adults and welcome all the children from all the marriages into their families if they were their own. Just love your stepchildren the way you would love your own children. You can't control what your spouse's ex control what you're going to do and how you will behave, and what you should do is love. No matter how difficult that ex-spouse is, no matter how tough she is, no matter how much she doesn't agree with the way you're raising her child, you, your duty is just to love. Um, a child's not a bargaining chip. A child's not a way to score points. A child's not a way to get even. A child's not a way to show who is in charge or who is the boss or who won anything. A child is a child. And your responsibility and duty and privilege is to love that child. And finally, and this is a hard thing for parents to acknowledge, that these little people that we have the responsibility and privilege of raising are not really our children. We don't own them. They're not really ours. They're God's. Like everything else in this world, including ourselves, they're God's. Maybe this is why Jesus spoke so harshly about families. He knew we think of our family as our family, our mother, our parents, our children, this possessive, selfish desire to control. Um, And Jesus knew that this powerful pull that families have on our loyalty and on our hearts can make us think that we own these families. But we don't. 
I think the appropriate way to look at our families is we are given the blessing of being the earthly parents of God's creation, given the duty and the blessing to be stewards of God's children for a little while. But let's not be so possessive to think that they're truly and eternally ours. Nothing is truly and eternally ours. Everything, including our spouses and our children and ourselves, are truly and eternally God's. And it's our job and joy to love these children and stepchildren and adopted children while God has allowed us the privilege of raising them. Does the, uh, does the Bible give on families? Well, really, the Bible doesn't give advice uh, distinguishing between blended families or normal families, or really it doesn't distinguish between Jews or Gentiles or men and women or rich or poor or different nationalities. The Bible gives us very general advice that applies to everyone. Why? Certainly not because the advice is just vague and ambiguous and it was easy to, to write. No. Um, there's a very good reason the New Testament gives this advice for everyone. Because Jesus is radical even today. Maybe especially today. But imagine in first century Jewish Palestine that there is no, fee, no female and no male when men and women had very different rights. That there are no rich or poor. That there is no free or slave. No Jew or Gentile. This was worse than radical. This was just crazy talk. Um, this kind of crazy egalitarian love, this unmerited, undeserved love of grace and mercy, and not just to our friends, but even to our enemies, this was just crazy. <laughs> um, even today, it seems radical. Even today, we try to divide ourselves into red states and blue states and conservative or liberal, Democrats or Republicans, men, women, straight, gay, bisexual, married, single families, normal families, blended families. Um, but this is the advice Jesus gave to everyone, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul lived in times very much like our own. I think he would recognize our culture much more readily than we might uh, find comfortable. Um, and I think he knew that Jesus was right in telling us that the solution to all of our problems, not just blended family problems, but problems among peoples and nations, was love. And he wrote these beautiful words to tell us, this is really all the advice we need. We don't need to go through any kind of school or study or program or read some special self-help book. It's pretty simple. It's just really hard to do. But he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So, this is the time of the practical application. So, if you have your green cards... If you have your green cards, that's good, because then maybe you can be a U.S. citizen. No, that's not the kind of green card. <clears throat> Let's see. This week, what did we do? Ah, forgive. 
and ask to be forgiven. I think that is really important in families. One could almost tell the whole story of the new type. I think these are the central messages of Jesus Christ. He forgives us and asks us to have faith in him. And he asks us to forgive our neighbors their little sins against us as he has forgiven us our much, much bigger sins against him. Secondly, don't make family an idol. As I said, there are problems with this. Um, First, to place anything at the center of your life other than God is a sin. God wants to be first in your life. Ahead of career, ahead of money, ahead of fame, ahead of power, ahead of the plans you have for your life, and ahead of your family. And second, making the family an idol is just putting too much pressure on you and your family. Families are not perfect. No family is perfect and no family ever was or ever will be. So relax, give yourself a break, and give your parents and your children and your brothers and sisters a break. And finally, remember that we are all children of God. Our real family is the family of God. God is our eternal father. Our fellow Christians are our eternal brothers and sisters. There are no stepchildren or stepbrothers or stepsisters in heaven. In heaven, we're all one big blended family. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us our earthly families. Help us to show love and patience and forgiveness to our parents and brothers and sisters and children. And help us to remember that your eternal plan for us is to have one eternal family in heaven where all are brothers and sisters of you and we're all rejoice together and worship together and give thanks together as one universal family of yours, as the true, eternal, blended family of God. Amen.